You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jimmy, and it's my great pleasure and privilege to open up God's Word for you this morning. What do you see on Good Friday? Last Sunday morning, I was out with our kids' ministry, talking to them about Easter and what they see. And the suggestions came thick and fast. Friends, family, chocolate, and Jesus. Maybe even in that order. (laughs) I wonder what you see on Good Friday. All of us have a different relationship with Easter. Some of us would come this morning having been invited by friends or family. Some of us have come to seek the truth about who is this man, Jesus. What is Easter all about? Some of us have come as part of our regular worshipping, and some of us are not quite sure what we're doing here this morning, but here we are. I think about that first Good Friday, and I wonder if they would have felt similarly with different experiences. The soldiers would have seen a criminal condemned to death to take away. The Jewish leaders and authorities would have seen the end of their opponents, an end to the threat to their power. The crowd would have seen a spectacle. The man who they'd seen do miraculous things and be incredibly compassionate, meeting an untimely death. Pilate would have seen an irritation. The disciples would have seen a travesty, a tragedy, a miscarriage of justice. Their beloved friend condemned to die. What do you see on Good Friday? We read in John and his description of the events that he was handed over and they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is known as the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Crucifixion was a public event. This was no private death. It was carried out at Golgotha, likely a pill that looked like a skull that all the criminals could be held up as an example. This was the height of shame. None of the gospel writers go into great detail even the act of crucifixion. And even in ancient history, there's little description of what crucifixion actually looked like because it was so full of shame. This was the most shameful thing that could happen. We know that Jesus would have been surrounded by four soldiers who would take him to Golgotha. A cross beam of around 50 kilograms would have been placed onto his back and they would have taken him the longest route possible, paraded in front of as many people as possible to show that crime does not pay. This is what happens to shameful criminals. And a placard would have been placed detailing the crime. This is what happened for Jesus. 
Pilate had an inscription written and put on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Latin and in Greek. But the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It's worth pausing here for a moment because Jesus being described or proclaimed as a king is not an uncommon occurrence. Wise men from the east upon his birth came searching for a king. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem, his triumphant entry, the crowds proclaimed, Behold, beloved is the king of Israel. Pilate's question to Jesus was, are you a king? And what does Jesus do but talk about his kingdom? And so it's not unsurprising that the kingly title goes before him. But this is not Pilate confessing that Jesus is the king of kings. No, this is a political revenge. Pilate has been strong-armed into condemning Jesus. He gave them out after out to not do this to him. But they twisted his arm and made it so that Pilate had to. And so Pilate turns around and says, well, if I have to, this is how it's going to be. This is your king. You claim he's the king or that he claims, well, he is your king. Look at your king, your shameful, weak, condemned king. Pilate humiliates them. They ask again and again, change it. And Pilate refuses. But Pilate speaks of something far deeper than what he knows. Because this is the king. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of kings. And this moment, this weak moment, this shameful moment, this moment that that Pilate wants to humiliate them with, this is the reason we are gathered 2,000 years on in songs of praise and worship honoring this king. This king with his sentence carried out in three languages would not just be proclaimed and worshipped in three languages, but in every tribe and tongue For all of eternity, this moment is his coronation. Pilate speaks of more than what he knows. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier. They also took his tunic, and the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who will get it. And this was to fulfill what the scriptures says. They divided my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is what the soldiers did. Most Jewish men would roughly wear five pieces of clothing. They would wear sandals, they would have a turban of some kind, they would have a belt, 
An outer tunic and an inner tunic. An outer robe and an inner robe. And so what has happened is that the soldiers have divided the, the, the cheaper clothing, the less prestigious items of clothing among themselves and been left to work out what to do with the more expensive outer robe. But they don't even realize that even this action, this shameful action of gambling for the clothes of Jesus before his death is to fulfill what Scripture says. In fact, this whole section is just full of prophetic Scriptures coming true. That Jesus would be crucified between two criminals. Scripture fulfilled. That the soldiers would gamble for his clothes. Scripture fulfilled. The manner and, and, the manner and place of his death. Scripture fulfilled. That Jesus would cry out for drink. Scripture fulfilled. There is this sense in which all of Scripture is coming towards this moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that hundreds and hundreds of years before your birth, that someone was able to accurately predict where you would be born, the most important details of your life, where you would die, when you would die, how old you would be when you die. You would think that person is a wizard, someone sent from the future. Conservatively, more than 300 separate predictions about the birth of Jesus, about the life of Jesus, about his death, about who the Messiah would be, have been fulfilled in Jesus. Each of them a brick built upon one more brick to build a monument of God's faithfulness. And in this moment... When it seems like all of Scripture is building up, all the Old Testament is pointing towards this moment, there seems to be a diversion because Jesus stops to care for his mum. Standing near the cross for his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Mary, by this stage, is an old woman, likely a widow. Joseph, we presume, is dead. Jesus' brothers are not there she is alone surrounded by her sister and other women and in the culture of the day Jesus had a cultural obligation to take care of his mum to make sure that she was provided for Jesus' brothers are nowhere on the scene not trusting in Jesus not believing in Jesus and so Jesus entrusts his mum to the beloved disciple the disciple we know as John but when reading that this week, it almost seems like a diversion or a distraction. This is the most important moment of Scripture. Everything is building up to his crucifixion, his death, and subsequent resurrection. And so right at the moment of his death, the last thing that Jesus does is to stop and take care of his mum. What is going on? On. Surely this could have been sorted before this event. Surely you could have had the conversation before the cross. Until it came to me, 
that this is what the cross is all about. See, what's happening in this moment is an adoption. Mary and John are the ones who seem to lose the most of all of Jesus' friends and family. Mary loses her, her oldest son. John loses the master whose love has come to define his life. And yet what they gain is what everyone who trusts in Jesus gains. They gain a new family. Here is your mother. Here is your son. A new family has been created. This is what the death of Jesus accomplishes and his resurrection. And it's true for all of us. Look around. These are not just a random assortment of people that God has called to be here. But if these are people who trust in Jesus, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, a new family. This is a picture of what God has accomplished on the cross. That he has not just adopted us into each other's family, but into his. It's not simply that you have all become youngs, as my family name is, or that we have all become bleebies, but that we have all become part of God's family. This is the crown jewel of salvation. That we have been adopted into God's family. And so it strikes me that at the very moment of his crucifixion, Jesus stopped to ensure that an adoption takes place. That Mary is cared for. That John is cared for. I don't know what your home life is like. Some of us might leave this place to a busy and noisy house. And some of us might go home to an empty roof. Some of us might go to a full lunch where our bellies will be full. And some of us might go home just wishing we had someone to share a meal with. But the truth is, for all of those who trust in Jesus, you are part of his family you have been adopted into his family just as surely as Mary and John were adopted and made new. You have been brought into his family. God has provided you brothers and sisters around you to provide in your loneliness. And God has ensured that he is your father. And you will never be alone. At this moment, Mary leaves. The disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said in order to fill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, and so they put a sponge full of the wine and a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Famously, the last words of Cecil Rhodes were so much to do, so little done. 
And in fact, that's how many of us feel at the end of our week of work. But that is not the last words of Jesus. It is finished. On the way to the cross, Jesus received a mixture of wine and some other substances that were to dull the senses, to dull the pain. But this concoction was not to dull the pain, but to shock Jesus in order to give him strength and energy, not just to say it, but to shout it. All of the Gospels describe Jesus not meekly, just simply whispering, it is finished, but shouting, it is finished. This is not the meek submission of a man condemned to die, but the proclamation of a saviour finishing his mission. The reign of the principalities and the powers. It is finished. The condemning power of the law on our hearts. It is finished. God's mission to bring his people back into relationship with him. It is finished. Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. It is finished. The sting of death. The victory of death. It is finished. Every promise made about a Messiah who would come. It is finished. The distance between God and man, the cause of our sin, it is finished. The reconciliation of a holy God and an unholy people, it is finished. It is finished and it always will be finished. Good Friday is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Paid in full finished and so the question is what do you see on Good Friday we all have different relationships with Easter you may come as a seeker as someone invited as someone who's known this story or you may not know why you're here but what do you see on Good Friday Because I can tell you that I see a king. I see a new family being made. I see a saviour finishing his mission. It is finished. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. But if you see that this morning, maybe for the first time or maybe for the 500th, Tell someone about it. Tell a brother or sister around you, I see this too. I see the king. I see the family being made. I see the saviour finishing his mission. It is finished. Well, let me pray for us now. Jesus, often it's hard to see this as a good Friday. We feel the pain and the tension of the disciples, the travesty, the tragedy, the miscarriage of justice, the innocent Savior come to die, and yet from our vantage point, 2,000 years on, we see that it was good. We see what you were doing, that this was an end to the mission. 
an end to the hostility between you and us, an end to the division. God, I pray that you would help us see you for who you are. That we wouldn't get distracted, but rather that we would see you as the king. That we would see you as a savior. That we would see all that you're doing in your death, caring for us, making us into one new family. God, I pray that we will be encouraged And I pray that we will be drawn to you. May we see the same care that you had for Mary. That you care for us just as deeply. And that in your cross and in your death, we have a saviour who loves us deeply. May we see this, may we know it, and may it change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.